Hey, Southland City Church friends, uh, Jason Miller here. Uh, This is kind of a special bonus podcast episode. I'm super excited about it. Uh, The reason for the episode goes back to the series that we just wrapped up called The Anatomy of Spiritual Revolution. And if you've been listening along, you might know that at the last week of that series, uh, we asked some questions about how we could be a church for people who are in different places and stages of faith or or belief or or non-belief. And uh, one of the ways that we looked at that was to turn to the book of Philippians, which um, has this passage where Paul talks about how we should be with one another and how we should be toward one another. And um, to talk to us about that, Paul brings in this um, sort of a hymn or a poem about Christ. And uh, we're going to get into that in a moment. But uh, so I used that in the sermon a little bit. And then after church, I was talking to a friend of mine named Josh. And uh, Josh is a theologian and a teacher who's um, actually done a lot of work on this passage. And so he just brought up some um, ideas that I thought were really exciting. And I thought, why on earth wouldn't we just share this with the community? So this is kind of a deep dive, a little sort of bonus episode. And uh, my friend Josh McManaway is here. Josh, thank you. Yeah, of course. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, um, like you said, I'm I'm a teacher. I uh, teach theology at Holy Cross College. I'm also a research fellow at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, um, which is a very fancy title for just doing a lot of things, I think. Um, Yeah, I hold a PhD in theology from Notre Dame, and uh, I'm actually Catholic. Yeah, yeah, let's Uh, go there for a minute. (laughs) So you're Catholic, but you're part of a very particular um, sort of part of that church that people may not be aware of. Yeah, that's right. So um, most people, when they think of Catholic, uh, they think of Roman Catholic. That's their experience of Catholicism. Even most Catholics are like that. You know, it, it does make up something like 90% of the church. But in fact, there are 20 some odd other churches that are, you know, like in communion with uh, the Roman Catholics, with the, the Bishop of Rome. And one of those groups is called the Melkites. And they're a group that exists in the, the Middle East, uh, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, etc. And um, so that's the group that I have sort of been worshiping with for, for several years now. Um, I lived in Israel for a year and got to go to the Melkite Cathedral for, for church you know, for a year. And that was a really profound, amazing experience. But yeah, that's, that's the group I've, I've sort of been, been with for a while. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Uh, but you're not unfamiliar to our community. No, um, no, no. I actually uh, come, come to South Bend City Church too pretty regularly. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Right on. So, uh, so um, thanks for sort of, I don't know, sharing from uh, where you're coming from, I think you know, one of the things we talk about at Sopin City Church is we joke about being like liturgically promiscuous or whatever, but <laughs> sure. the deeper heart, right, is that just um, Christianity has been this um, really deep and and and, and broad um, sort of stream or many streams. And I just think like, why on earth wouldn't we avail ourselves of the like the best that we can learn uh, from like sisters and brothers um, in other sort of streams within that broader tradition. So here sure. you are. Yeah, well, I don't know that I'm the best, but I'm at least here. Well, we're gonna and, find and out, I, aren't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, um, okay, so here's the deal. I, I was talking about Philippians 2. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'll just read the hymn um, briefly, just to remind people. Um, this was Paul uh, speaking to the church when he said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature with, or, sorry, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's kind of the the passage, right? That's that. Yeah. 
Um, you uh, you brought this up with me. Maybe tell us a little about like why you were working on this passage, and then we'll go into what it could say for, for us today. Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll be pretty brief. So, I mean, this passage uh, in the history of of Christianity has been sort of central for how Christians approach um, reading the rest of the Bible. You know, Augustine calls this uh, a rule by which you're meant to read. The, the rest of scripture. It's that, yeah. it's what, that central for What him. does that even mean? Yeah, so uh, he basically says like, you have to first understand this Philippian hymn and what it means about the person of Jesus before you're going to be able to understand, you know, uh, the rest of Paul's letters when it talks yeah, about yeah. Christ or, or the gospels or whatever. So this kind of unlocks uh, exactly. like a, an understanding that you're gonna take with you then when you look at other sort of parts of the text or whatever. Exactly, like, get this right, and that's the first step to a proper reading. Get it wrong, and, and you're certain to go astray, according to Augustine. Yeah, right on. So it really matters. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's pretty central. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so we looked at it specifically, because um, we were trying to sort of um, hear what the text might be saying about, like, be like Christ toward one another. And um, we sort of went toward this direction of like making room for one another. Yeah. Um, but, but we can kind of table that for a moment and just, um, you brought up uh, after we were, we bumped into each other at lunch, and you you talked about um, a way of reading this moment in Christ with regard to Adam. Yeah, right. Yeah, what's the big idea there? So I I think um, I when I when I read that Christ you know empties himself, I can't remember how your translation. Um, I think made himself nothing. Made himself which may nothing. May not be a great. Uh, right. I think you're reading from the the new the NIV. The NIV. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I've got the NRSV, the New Revised Standard here, and it says, "Who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself." Um, and that word there, exploited, is maybe not the best translation. A lot of different translations will will have different words here, but the word really means something like to grasp, and. Um, I remember reading this and, and remembering, you know, who is the first person in scripture to sort of grasp at something which they think is going to give them equality with God. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, um, and so I think Paul, uh, or rather Paul, uh, whoever wrote this hymn, it probably wasn't Paul, right? Paul is quoting this to a group that already knows, already knows this hymn. But um, this hymn, I think, is unlocking the sort of the difference between Adam and Jesus. Adam is sort of prideful and looking out for number one, right? He's gonna, he's gonna get to God sort of by bypassing God. But this person, Jesus, who is already in the form of God, as man, nevertheless, doesn't grasp at equality. He doesn't snatch at the thing because he's, he's humbled himself. Yeah, it's a, I have this picture in mind that we're like tempted to sort of um, climb or like aspire to power, uh, to, yes. to whatever. And like, like we're on our way up and God is like passing us on the way down. Okay, like, oh guys, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually in my nature to do the very opposite of the thing that you think is gonna make you like me. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, I mean, the incar- this, this discloses the kind of God that God is. Yeah. So this is not the only um, place then, in fact, there's other places where uh, there's writings in the New Testament that are really more on the nose about Adam and sure. Christ, right? And I know there's- yes. That can get uh, maybe a little bit in the weeds, right? Um, but uh, I, don't, I didn't even tell you I was going to go here. But uh, we'll see what you think about Let's this. Do it. Um, so you know, I think depending on what kind of Christianity people have been a part of or whatever, uh, there can be a lot of fights about Adam, right? Like, oh sure, you know, is it, like is this historical or not? Like, is Adam a dude who lived, you know, at a time and place six thousand years ago or whatever? Or you know, like if you're going to um, maybe sit 
with like a scientific consensus about, you know, how our species sort of got here and all that stuff. That seems to be pretty hard to reconcile. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you're talking about Adam. Uh, I'm going to make some guesses about um, <laughs> how you read or don't read that. For, like for this to work, like for Adam and Christ to matter to us, yeah. do, do you need Adam to be like a guy who lived 6,000 years ago? Uh, no, I, I think on sort of both points, um, you could potentially say, well, I mean, certainly the 6,000 years thing is, uh, is not something that you have to be wed to. Um, and whether you can point to this or that particular historical person and say, aha, Adam, right? I don't know that that's sort of fundamental. That, I don't know that that's necessary um, for getting at what Paul is getting at here. Yeah, I, um, I feel like maybe sometimes the fight about that mm-hmm. can maybe miss the invitation to ask ourselves, like, in what ways are we, Adam? Right. Right. And I think yes. that's where you're sort of pointing us, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the text is, you know, the text of Genesis, when it tells us about Adam, I don't think is meant to simply tell you something about historical curiosities, right? The the, the whole point of the Hebrew Bible is, is to be representative and to show us um, sort of our own story often in the people of Israel. Like, we are Israel, you know, um, in the sense that, like, we're just as liable to... In the sense that we have idols and we wander yeah, and yeah, God right. moves toward us, but we might fail to move toward God, or right. like all these ways. Yeah, yeah. and when, I mean, when St. Paul says that these things were written for our instruction, I think that's precisely what he means, that we don't stand over the text and go, oof, thank gosh, I'm not like that. You know, yeah. it's, it's actually quite the opposite. We're exactly like that. So yeah. we are like Adam and we have to have Christ to come and sort of show us true humility and, and sort of how, what it really means to be a true human, yeah. which is to sort of step aside, to make room, to empty oneself, right? To, to give up pride and, and the notion of self-sufficiency um, that Adam had, that he thought, you know, hey, I, I don't need this God guy. I'm gonna go, you know. I'm gonna go get it for myself. I'm, I'm gonna go get it for myself. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in Genesis, right? I mean, what, what, what do they do at the Tower of Babel? They go get it for themselves. They try. Yeah, yeah. So we have Adam in the garden with Eve. Yep. And um, and there's this temptation towards sort of godlikeness that they think is sort of going to be fulfilled in that fruit that they were told not to reach for, right? Yes, exactly. But they, in this moment of, of deception or delusion or temptation, they reach for it, they take it, and they right. find out that it, um, in fact, didn't get them what they wanted. Yeah, In fact, right. they just find themselves on the outside looking in, estranged from God, Yeah, estranged from one another, it seems right. like. Yeah. Because they're less who they're meant to be at that point, right? God had created them for communion with him. And you can't have communion if you try to go around the person. Yes. To get, you know, you have to, yeah. you have to encounter the person. And yep. so this is why I think, yeah, the Philippian hymn is so central because it shows you it's not just about what God does in the world. It's yep. God showing you what it means to be a human being. Yeah, I love it. Um, so uh, I know that from what you brought up with me on Sunday, uh, that one of the reasons this featured in your work mm-hmm. is because you were working a little bit on Christology, right? yeah. like historical developments, like ways that the church in the last 2000 years has made sense of the mystery of Christ. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, um, I think this is actually really exciting. And I think like the temptation would be to not invite people into that because it might feel a little bit um, uh, dense, but I'm like, yeah. let's let's go there. I mean, there's like sure. beautiful riches in the history of the church. And so tell us a little bit about what you were working on in your academic work and why this came up. Sure. Before we sort of get to the, the academic thing too, I think, um, you know, there might be people who are, are sort of skeptical of these later developments, right? Uh, um, 
I mean, why, what do I care about what some council says in the 400s about the person of Jesus, right? Yep. And I think, I think that that can be fair. Um, but I, I, one reason I really love the Philippian hymn is that hymns in the Bible seem to me to express this sort of primeval, uh, you know, sort of experience, this encounter with Christ. And you don't have the, the doctrinal formulation set out yet. You know, it's, it's um, that comes later after the church has had time to live into the experience and to, to sort of finally, you know, articulate clearly what it is that, that we believe. But the hymn, I think, is principally about the experience, right? Yes. So yeah. the, the, the doctrine doesn't take over the hymn or the need. We all have to sort of do the experiential thing. And the, the hymn, I think, is, is something that can live in your heart. And, and the doctrine is something that can live, sort of cohabitate there in your head, yeah. you know? And the yep. two work in tandem, right? So sort of I'm, I'm making a little case here for yes. why Christology, why the study of this development um, is, is, you know, the, the fruit of the study of the hymn rather than being something imposed on the hymn. Well, and isn't it, is it fair to say that like maybe one of the, one of the pursuits with an orthodoxy is just to say that like, if we don't keep working out the language to describe this experience, the risk probably is that rather we will adopt language that's inadequate to the experience or that, yeah perverts it or just like misses something, right? So the, the pursuit is to just keep our language faithful yeah. to the totality of what that was and what it meant and what it continues to mean and what it is, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we have to take into account that, yeah, human beings are not just rational creatures who, you know, it's this Christianity is not a religion simply of, of the head, um, but it's not. All, it's also not simply a religion of the heart. And so we're constantly <laughs> yeah, it's not, sort not of- not for the mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, and so, um, I think, yeah, the, the, the hymn and then the later sort of doctrinal clarity, um, they, they work together. They work in tandem instead of being opposed to one another. So we don't have to choose one over the other. Yeah. Um, so my own work is on this guy called Nestorius, right? And I'll give like a, a brief, the briefest of brief spiels. Um, basically, this guy was a bishop of Constantinople um, which was a huge city in antiquity. By the time that he was a bishop in 428, Constantinople was like the capital of the Roman Empire. So it's a really big deal to be the bishop. And um, I won't go into the nitty gritty unless you, you want me to, but I'll just say that um, he preached some things about the person of Jesus that did not resonate with the people's experience of Jesus. Got it. Right? Yep. And... Um, when his fellow bishops from around the empire wrote him letters and tried to correct him, he was pretty hesitant. He was pretty reluctant. Um, and he, he sort of kept doubling down saying the same things over and over again. And so a lot of the people who responded to Nestorius um, invoked this Philippian hymn. And they said, look, man, you're, you're reading this wrong. Like, let's, let me show you how the church in her experience, in her worship over these last few hundred years has been reading this hymn. Yes. Yeah, so it really became a, a, a crucial text um, in that little controversy. So let's go a little bit into it. Like, sure. what, what was at stake in what he was saying or might have been wrong about? Sure. So Nestorius uh, ended up denying in one of his homilies, Sermon 9, if people want to go check it out. <laughs> good, uh, good note. <laughs> yep. Uh, he ended up denying that we can call Mary the mother of Jesus, the mother of God. Whoa. Okay. Now this this might put some you know this might raise some some uh, cackles and that's fine. 
some, but, pro- some Protestant cackles. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, but the idea is basically um, when, when the church calls Mary the mother of God, what the church is not saying is that Mary gave birth to divinity or something right, like that. Right. right. Mary did not precede the Trinity or something like that. That would be absurd. How could a creature, uh, right? But the, the sort of the issue here is that Jesus Christ is one person who is truly God and truly man, right? So he has a, a genuine human nature and a genuine divine nature. And the church said, well, if this one person is genuinely God and genuinely man, then Mary is the mother of God in the sense that she's the mother of this one person named Jesus Christ. And here's a thought experiment I do with my, my uh, students when I teach this. I say, look, um, we all know people who have given birth because you know we exist, we know our own parents, but let's say you walk into a hospital and um, you know, a hospital room where a friend of yours has just given birth. Nobody looks down at the new child and goes, oh, what a beautiful human nature, <laughs> right? right? No, moms give birth to persons, yes. right? And this one person, Jesus Christ is God. So that's why the church said, in order to affirm two things, one, that Jesus is one person and not two, and two, that he has both a genuine divine nature and a genuine human nature, we have to say that Mary is the mother of God. So this, this title, mother of God, um, sort of secures a proper understanding of Jesus so that when you approach something like the Philippian hymn, you can sort of read it correctly. Yep. Yeah. So, so how does the Philippian hymn um, sort of figure in that conversation? Then why is this sure. the text that they said, "Hey, look"? Right. Um, so, when Nestorius approaches uh, the Philippian hymn, he and and he's following a, a tradition. So he's not he's not um, on his own here. There are other authors who are like Nestorius. Uh, but Nestorius would say something like, "Well, see, when we talk about the form of God." That's kind of one thing that we can talk about on its own. Uh, and then when we talk about the, um, the form of a slave, i.e. The, the human being, um, well, that's something else that we can talk about. And so um, uncharitably, you could call this team Jesus. Um, so you've got, you've got sort of the divine nature who does all the divine things. You know, the divine nature does like, uh, he does the miracles and um, you know, he does all the sort of great stuff. The form of the slave, the human nature, well, he does all the yucky, messy stuff, right? He, he does things like being born, mm-hmm. just kind of beneath <laughs> God, isn't it? You know, suffering, uh, suffering, right? He dies on the cross. Oh man, you know, Nestorius gets very nervous about the idea that God could die on the cross. Um, and so what he does is he takes the form of God and the form of a slave and basically makes them separate subjects, right? He, he will talk about them um, as sort of a team. I mean, he doesn't use the word team, but he says, sure, they're joined together. Um, and so we can kind of talk about them as one thing, but really they're actually two. Let's make sure we always separate you know, the two. So the divinity does the miracles, the humanity does the dying and the, the bad stuff. And that way I can keep God safe. Yeah. Okay. So for people who are like right now, maybe they're a little, you know, maybe that's a little yeah. abstract. Sure. Um, yeah. But also maybe, maybe they are a little bit like, but who cares? <laughs> like, like, yeah. I guess I'm like, so um, first of all, if something's true. It's true. I hope you would care about it for its own sake. Sure. 
But secondly, um, Paul begins, he, Paul invokes this hymn because he's saying you should be like this, right? Yes. So there's something must be going on where it's like if if we get Christ right, it's gonna it's gonna bleed into our lives and it's sure. gonna affect the way that we think about who we are, right? Yeah. So yeah. could you kind of keep us going in that direction? Yeah, I think there are are a lot of implications uh, to this. Uh, I mean, uh, almost <laughs> too many for me to to list, but I would say. One of them is that if you reject Nestorius's position, if you take what the church sort of articulated at these councils in the 400s, um, and you say this person, Jesus, is one person who's both God and man, you preserve, you preserve God's willingness to come down into the muck and the mire mm. of created reality, right? Yes. You don't have this distant God who says, oh boy, you guys have really messed up. You're on your own now, right? Or even you guys have messed up and I'll send this other guy down there. Yeah, you, you don't know? get a God who keeps himself at arm's length right. from our reality, uh, our mess. Yeah, yeah. And and so he, it, it preserves, I think, the integrity of the story. Um, so one of, one of the guys I worked on who responded to Nestorius is a guy called John Cashin, C-A-S-S-I-A-N. Um, When's he writing? Or he, so he he's writing around the same time. He writes uh, a huge uh, treatise against Nestorius in seven books oh <laughs> in Latin uh, <laughs> in 430. And so this is a year before Nestorius is, is kicked out of his position as uh, bishop. And <clears throat> part of his argument is is this, that if you if you separate the divinity out from the humanity, you have ruined the story of Christianity. You have ruined the the beauty that God Himself is willing to come down and be with us to be Emmanuel, as Matthew says. Um, and then that's not Christianity anymore. That's something else. Uh, and so I I think um, the I mean and and from that I think stem lots of implications, right? That um, how are you meant to live as a human being? Well, this genuine human being here shows you, or um, you know. I know, I know God is love is, is something that um, sort of gets bandied about and it seems trite and cliche. But when you think of God as love in the context of this story, love not simply as an abstraction, not simply as uh, a nice feeling, but that God himself is willing to come down in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, th then you can know yourself as loved in a very different way. Yeah, right you know on. What I mean? yep. uh, and, and so I think those are at least pastorally, those are some of the big implications. Yep. Um, I've also heard, I've heard Richard Rohr say uh, that the reason to insist on a good Christology, the reason that it really matters that we hold together um, Christ as both God and man, yeah. is that if we can't put it together in him, we don't have any chance of putting it together in us. Right? Man, that's exactly right. Yeah, right. And and you know, Christ is the front runner, the forerunner of our salvation, in the sense that ultimately we're meant to be joined with God, right? So yes. if, if if even God couldn't pull it off <laughs> right. in the person of Jesus, yeah, then what, what, what hope left do we for have? Us? Yeah, right. right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so okay. So coming back out of those weeds a little sure, bit, yeah, yeah. which was fantastic, by the way. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, you brought that way down in a great way for us. <laughs> um, uh, let's get back to a little bit of like just what it would mean then. So like, let me. Um, you know, I feel like you almost can't help but live out your image of God, whether you call it God or not, right? Yeah. Whether you think of yourself as a believer or a non-believer, we just we actually have this way of sort of living in alignment with the assumptions we have about ultimate reality, right? So, of course, yeah. 
So, um, so if the gift here is to meditate on like how God has been revealed in this, right? That like being in very nature, like this is what God is like, right? That God doesn't grasp godness. That, I mean, that's going to be a little sloppy, right? But sure, like God yeah, doesn't yeah. cling to status or privilege or power. Man, yeah. But like it's in the, it's in the very nature. It's not it's not exceptional to the character of God that God did this here. It's like no, this is what God is like. Yeah. Um, how do you see like? You know, tomorrow somebody's going to wake up. They're a mom or they're a dad, and they're they got kids in the house. Uh, somebody else is going to head to work. Uh, there's a student who's going to show up in the classroom, and then on the practice field, um, there's somebody in retirement who doesn't know what their day should look like now that their job is done. Um, I think uh, the beauty of like theology is it actually can show up in our everyday lives really powerfully. Like for sure. What do you think it starts to look like for people who are going to take this picture really seriously? Oh wow! I know a big one, but yeah, yeah man. a couple You're, of like, yeah. Uh, this is. Um, I think this is a really great question. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, I in my sort of line of work, I don't get asked the pastoral implications. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so much. Yeah, what does this look like? I I don't I don't know. It's hard for me. Um, it's hard for me to know in in these exact. Like context, actually, I know I'm not punting on the question. No, that's fair. Yeah, but I, I do. I, I, um, I think it's going to manifest very differently. Like the virtues are going to manifest differently in our lives according to the context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it might like for the for the married couple that's having a bit of a tough time and there's some resentment, right? This idea of of um, of self emptying might mean being a little more gracious to your spouse and 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 you know, sort of. Working through things together and 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 trying to to bring down the resentments for the for the retired person, right? It, it's going to look very different yeah. for the, um, and so I think, um, I think yeah. I mean, I I actually kind of want to ask you because you <laughs> you are the you're the you know the pastor here. Like, are, are there ways that mm. you've seen this sort of this thing manifest in your own life, and are there ways in which you would hope for this to manifest in the in the lives of your congregants, your parishioners? Way to kick that back. There you go. <laughs> um, I, so one thing that comes to mind is maybe just personally, even I think I am slowly learning to be aware when that grasping energy is driving me. Mm, I feel yes. like there's usually some. There's often like anxiety is part of that grasping. Yeah, of right? course. Um, I'm having a hard time trusting God, or I, I don't. I may not like consciously be thinking it, but somewhere in there, there's um, maybe some fear, some self protectionism. There's sure. Um, you know, I might say that I believe that um, that God is you know generous and cares for us and knows our needs. But what I might really be feeling like is that today I feel like I'm on my own, and if yeah. I can't take it for myself. I'm going to be left with not enough. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I think I'm learning to sense when when that sort of grasping energy is in the driver's seat, and I'm trying to like learn how to like catch that. Yeah, and then take a take a minute and like ask myself like, is that really what I believe about God and about how my life has to you know provide for itself? Yeah, I also really love. Um, I learned this from somebody else years ago, but somebody pointed out to me that, and I don't actually. I should ask you. I don't know if this is actually true, but somebody said to me that like a proper liturgical approach to the Eucharist, um, you never take, you always receive. Oh, sure. And so like at our church, we'll often say like, when you approach the table of Jesus, you don't have to take the bread. You can just open your hand and, and, and receive it. And that there, that even like the way that we approach that practice as a church, 
coming to the table can be like this little embodied sort of ritual that's not just that like that one of the reasons the eucharist is good and beautiful and and why it helps us is that it i can come to that table today and ask myself like in what ways this week have i been taking and grasping and how and how has it been hard for me to just hold out an, an empty hand hmm. and trust that it'll be filled with with what god needs it to be filled with yeah yeah man that's great yeah that's that's that's, really that's what's still kind of working its way out for me sure yeah. yeah. And then I feel like, you know, like relationally, I think like there's a lot of relationships where I can sense, why is this not working? Yeah. I think I'm actually grasping. I'm taking, uh, you know, whether it's, there's a lot of ways we take from one another in relationship. And um, yeah. I, I, and I, I'd be really, it'd be fun to hear from members of our community. You know, I wonder For if sure. anybody listens to this, if they'd like, you know, fire back at us and let us know like what grasping has looked like in your life. Yeah. And then when you've had moments when you've been able to, to let go of that, uh, what that's done, yeah, yeah, that would be great. I'd love to. I'd love to hear the answers. To this actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd so, be yeah. fun, right? Yeah, we'll have to find <laughs> a way sure. to work that out. Um, I, one thing I love about this, Josh, is I know, like, I I actually grew up in a tradition that, in some ways, said um, that it was, we we made a virtue out of um, like reading the Bible as if the the clock on Christian thinking stopped the day the last word of the New Testament was written. Sure. And then it started again today. So wherever, you know, yeah. and then it's the 2000 years that you were almost supposed to studiously ignore out of like fidelity to the Bible or something like that. And I remember um, when I was um, doing some, my master's degree at Notre Dame where there were really great teachers who were able to take us into um, the writings of the women and men of the last 2000 years who have spoken um, the best that the church has given us, you know? Right. And again and again, I was like, why did nobody tell me that we have these <laughs> riches? Because we're not on our own, right? Like yeah, we have right. the entire communion of the church for 2000 years um, to help us appropriate this wisdom for today. And so I just really appreciate um, getting to learn from people like you who have done the work for us, you know? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, um, it's nice to be a part of this conversation. I mean, with you and with the great tradition um, that we we see, and and to be able to sort of put that into into place in our in our lives. Yeah, I think it's it's such a it's such a gift to be able to translate that too. Um, and and so much of the the this tradition you're talking about is not you know these abstract, overly philosophical things. Uh, Christians a thousand years ago were not so different. You know, they 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 had marriages, they had right. kids, they had you fears, know, they, they had fears, right? Yeah. And and um, they asked a lot of the questions that we're asking. They looked at the Bible and were sometimes puzzled by it. And it's nice uh, to realize that Christianity is a community and not simply you and a book that you have to figure out. Yes, I love that, uh, dude. Thanks for your time today, man. Man, we'll, thanks for we'll having me. We'll have to find a chance to do something like this again. But I'm really grateful. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me.